This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm your host for Upstream and Perspective, Jessica Nelson. Today we have Reed Olmsted and Emery Kugler back on the pod for a little friendly North America Unconventionals debate. West Texas oil or East Coast gas? One might expect similarities between the country's two lowest cost onshore plays. Of course, I'm talking about the Permian and Appalachia. But we're seeing operational leadership take two totally different trajectories, as super majors take over the Permian in West Texas and pure plays take over the Marcellus in Appalachia. I think it was the Marcellus that got majors excited about unconventionals um, as what was then Statoil partnered with Chesapeake back in 2008. Now that the majors are all but rounding errors in Marcellus activity levels, what explains the emergence of pure play operators as relative to the disappearance of the majors? That's a good question. I think you can see uh, that there was an excitement among the super majors early on getting into gas opportunities, but that was all premised on a relatively high gas price. So $7 an MMBTU. Gas growth was pretty dramatic. The price got depressed very quickly, and now we're in a $3 price environment. And it's interesting because we saw something similar on the oil side where oil went from $90 down to $26 uh, or $28. The, the interesting thing there, though, or the divergence of the trajectories is that oil came back, and that's when the, that's when the super majors got into the Permian Basin. It wasn't at the, at the low point of, of the price cycle. It was as the price was rebounding. So in the Marcellus, the operators got in, the majors got in when things worked at, at you know, $7, it was great. It might have worked at $4. But when we saw prices go down below $2, it didn't make sense. They got burned. They pulled back, allocated capital to other places. And we've seen the oil price come back up. And that's been a large draw um, for the for the Permian. It's been tested at these low prices and has proved resilient. Um, and so there's a little bit less, there, there's less risk in that opportunity for the majors at this point. And cost played a key role there, too. There was a disconnect between gas and oil prices for a while, and so that didn't drive all the efficiencies that we realized 2015, 2016, and in 2017. Because you had low oil and low gas at the same time, so the only way to really survive was to become much more efficient. Yeah, which is what what really drove the pure plays and, and the Marcellus. Is these guys decided, look, we're going to have to work this asset as good as we can. Uh, their pure play is not necessarily by choice, but by fate. Uh, they just didn't get out. Uh, so it wasn't that they chose to stay, it's that they didn't choose to get out. Whereas we've seen a different evolution of the Permian Basin um, as, as oil price came back. Yeah, and that's a good point, too. When you think about the Marcellus, the key Marcellus operators, they leased that land 10 years ago. Anything about range, EQT, Cabot, Chief, Southwestern, they've basically been buy and hold. You know, saw in the Permian all the big, almost breathtaking transactions because part of the strategy was 
lease, get some landmen together and then sell off and even drill some wells, prove it up a bit, sell off again. It, it was a very different pictures. Mm -hmm. So, so what are you saying? Are you saying the pure plays had better acreage or how are they making money or, or did they do something that, that the majors didn't? You know, you're kind of premising that question on, on an assumption that they are making money. And, and I think a lot of them aren't. We've seen some of the premier Appalachian operators were on the forefront of trying to live within cash flow, you know, reduce CapEx. It's not about growth because the price just isn't there to, to really push operators to grow volumes uh, at the expense of margin or the expense of cash flow. So I think some of them are. It depends on how you define making money. But a lot of these guys, that's their only asset. They're not distracted by Africa. They're not distracted by uh, South American operations or what's going on uh, in Venezuela with assets there. You know, this is all they've got. And so they're very committed to it. They're doing a lot more optimization of each individual well. Uh, they're, they have the ability to spend more time on that. And another part of this is, look, these, these pure play operators, they just by default have lower overhead. So you may have uh, an 80 cent per MMBTU GNA or 80 cents for, for a major, but maybe that's only 40 cents for, for uh, a pure play. And so that, that plays on the economics aside from individual well costs and the productivity of the acreage. Yeah, and I might add that, that actually most of those buy and hold operators actually did have better acreage. So EQT runs that, what we call the Southwest Core. They have most of that acreage. Range has most of the liquids-rich core area acreage. If you go up to the northeast, that's Chief, that's uh, Chesapeake, that's Southwestern. The majors got into more peripheral areas generally. Chevron was more central Pennsylvania, which is lower productivity. Shell is a little bit outside of the core area. Repsol, if we want to count them, is a, is a bit out of the core area. So. But I think even if they did have the core acreage, if, if you saw a major with core acreage in the Permian or the Marcellus, capital's going to Texas. Well, is there a gas price that makes the Marcellus more interesting to the majors? I think it needs to be quite a bit higher than what it is right now. That might be $5. Yeah. And part of the problem is even now, gas is still a very landlocked commodity. Yeah, we have exports of LNG and we've got trade across the northern and southern borders, but it's still very much balanced by U.S. demand, Canadian demand, whereas oil can play in the global markets. And so it puts you in a different pricing arena where, um, you know, it's not just so on demand, which is what we've seen. So it'd be pretty tough to get a price like that. You know, we're even seeing LNG prices coming down globally um, as the U.S. makes its move into that into that industry. So there is a price. There's always a price, but it's not one that we're expecting anytime. Right. I, I would say virtually impossible because you have a lot of Marcellus resource, a lot of associated gas in the U.S., a lot of Utica resource, a lot of Haynesville resource. It's going to break even below $4, say, in real terms. So even with a pretty aggressive LNG outlook, there's just enough resource for 20 years or more, certainly. So the Marcellus has taken the proverbial back seat from here on in Majors Unconventional's portfolio. This relegation in spite of relative aggressive acquisitive entry strategies around 2008. Do you expect the Marcellus's historical leadership pattern to be a blueprint for all unconventional plays? 
And 10 years from now, will it be the Permian that's deprioritized by the majors as specialists assume leadership? Will we see that same trajectory? You know, I, I don't I don't think we'll so there's a two part question. I don't think we'll see that happen in the Permian. The Marcellus is not actually the blueprint for unconventionals. It's followed the blueprint. We saw this in the Haynesville first. We've seen it emerge in the Bakken. We're seeing it emerge in the Eagleford, where these companies, that's their asset. That's what they're going to work. What happens in 10 years is still unknown. Um, but we're seeing the rise of pure plays largely across all these basins, or at least dominant operators. So I think that the Permian, the Permian is the exception here uh, that's redefining what it is, uh, what, what an unconventional play can look like or an unconventional basin. Um, and, and we definitely have a different expectation there. As, as it's unparalleled in its size, its economics, its, its ability to continue generating. So um, I think we'll see that shift. And, and then the real question is, uh, is that the blueprint for international unconventionals? Um, that's the question. But I, I think that we'll see the, the Marcellus continue down this pure play path, and the Permian is, uh, I think, the writing's on the wall that over the next five years we're going to see a lot of consolidation of smaller operators, and we're going to see a large domination of the globals. Yeah, I think there's just so much inventory at an attractive price that we enter into the what we always call manufacturing mode. And if there's one thing that majors really do well, it is execute projects, and that kind of essentially is what the Permian becomes. Now that the resource is proven, now that we know break-evens are 30 to $40 in the Permian, uh, it's execution from this point forward. So what do we see happening this year as super majors step up to lead the Permian? Um, we've never seen this in an unconventional play before. Um, majors have been there, but have they ever represented such a high percentage of annual investment? You know, I think we're, we're looking at the guidance that these, that these companies are given. Uh, I think that Exxon was pretty honest in their announcement about their performance, that it wasn't living up to what they might have expected. Uh, Chevron's still very bullish. Exxon is bullish despite that lower performance that they were seeing. So, yeah, we're actually looking that over that by 2025, those two companies combined are going to be an eighth of the production out of the basin. Um, and I think it, it, there's potential for it to grow from there. A lot of uncertainties between uh, today and 2025. But I think that we can be pretty certain that, these guys are here to stay. This is their growth opportunity. This is where they're looking to uh, deploy capital, uh, restock their portfolio. So um, it, it is a different it is a different operating environment for these guys. The competitive landscape has changed. The operational landscape has changed, um, and they're going to operate and run that run those assets in a very different manner than we've seen the the independents do. Yeah, and I think it's a bit of a role reversal there, too, where there's so much pressure on the U.S. independents to start returning cash that they backed off their spending projections for this year. And it's the ability of the majors to pull cash from other assets and put it into the Permian that, that allows them to overspend. And I think their cash flow positivity estimations are a few years from now versus right now for the independents. All right. And um, final question. You guys know I like to always do a little get to know you. <laughs> so so let me ask if you guys could have a beer with any one person, historical figure, uh, you know, current person, who would it be? I, I would have to say uh, probably Bill Watterson. Uh, and for those of you that didn't grow up 
in the 90s, uh, Bill Watterson wrote the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that was just uh, great commentary on life through the eyes of a child and a stuffed animal. And uh, reading that makes me think of my role now as a father, makes me think of the times I had as a kid. And I think there were some great philosophical questions posed in that strip. So for me, it'd be Bill Watterson. Well, that would be an interesting conversation. I'd, I'd like to hear the answer to that, actually. <laughs> Emory, who would you have to with? I think it, I'll make it a little more short and sweet, maybe a little more traditional. I think I'd say uh, Mark Twain. I'd, I'd like to hear some witty commentary instead of sort of just the, the fighting that we hear nowadays. Kind of miss that. Sure, yeah, two great answers. <laughs> All right, guys. Reed and Emory, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the pod today. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.